Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle John who had this vision from you and recorded it in this letter to these churches in Asia Minor. And we pray, Father, this morning that your Holy Spirit would take these words of mine and what is written in your book and speak to our hearts. Amen. Well, uh, daydreaming, looking into the future. I wonder how many of us have done it. We're at the time of year, aren't we, when 17 and 18-year-olds were getting extremely nervous on the Thursday as they uh, waited for that brown envelope to drop through the door and uh, the online UCAS had uh, said whether they'd got their places at university or not or whether they had to go through clearing. I wonder what they were thinking, what was their daydream. Or perhaps we've got to the time of life when we're expecting grandchildren. What will they be like? What will our sons and daughters be like as parents? And what will the world and the future be like for them? Well, it's good, isn't it, to have daydreams. It's good to have ambitions. But it can be quite a dangerous occupation because we never know really what the future will hold or whether, in fact, we have any control over it. Well, in these August Sundays, we're in a short series of sermons based upon passages within the book of Revelation, and I've been given Revelation 13. Now, this book, we've got to understand about this book, it was written as a circular letter to seven churches of Asia Minor, written by the Apostle John, who was getting on in years, and he was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. And there are twofold messages that come from the whole of the book of Revelation. If I can have the first slide, thank you. The first point was this. It brought encouragement in the true apocalyptic manner to Christians who were under great pressure, assuring them that their enemies would in the end be destroyed and God would triumph. And that's the overwhelming message that comes through this book of Revelation. Secondly, it's prophetic because it challenges even Christians themselves uh, concerning the forces of evil, for Satan must be overcome and Christ given his rightful place here and now in their own spiritual and moral lives. And to get these two messages across, the author uses what we would think of as very vivid imagery. Michael Wilcox says this, you can see, feel, and taste the images in this book. And it's with regard to these two messages, you can see on the screen, that we've got that we come to look at chapter 13. So I've got three things to do this morning. Firstly, what is the passage actually saying to us? Can we try and understand what's actually in the passage? And then secondly, look at the warnings given. And thirdly, and hopefully at the end, the encouragements found within this chapter. So firstly then, what does the passage actually contain? Well, it draws heavily from Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. And there's a lot in this passage concerning the devil and Satan and his servants. 
Now, the devil and Satan, we don't hear too much about in church today and the work of demonic forces. Somehow, demonic forces seem to be medieval, something that modern rationalistic man denies. Well, the famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis says this about demons. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And that's C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters. So let's not fall into either of these categories, but accept that Satan does exist and his works can still be seen today. And we need to remember that this book of Revelation was written as a letter. And uh, it, was, uh, it would have been ri- listened to rather than read. So as we come to unpick the contents, I found it useful to draw them out as a diagram, because I tend to think like this. There we go. Okay, as Jonathan Edwards states, the devil can counterfeit all the saving operations and graces of the Spirit of God. We see this here with what some commentators have called the Trinity. The dragon represents Satan, who controls his kingdom, and then we've got the two beasts, one that rises from the sea and one that rises from the earth. We see in verse 2 that this sea beast has been given power by the dragon and represents political power and authority. The second beast, which rises from the earth, again is given power by the dragon and represents religious and philosophical activity. And this is shown by his ability to perform miracles, signs and wonders. Now, both these beasts demonstrate how Satan seeks to duplicate and corrupt God's activities here on earth, and to deceive people. So let's look at the first beast then to start with, and you'll find this in verses 1 to 9. Now we see with this first beast that he does seek to duplicate and corrupt God's activities. We see this because God set up order. His creation shows order. And the Old Testament account of his people shows how important order and government is to God. Yet this beast from the sea represents political power that has corrupted good and fair governance. So it's often been linked to political empires and rulers who corrupt good governance. The sea monster of uh, verses 1 to 7 is modelled primarily on uh, Daniel 7. And if you want to read Daniel 7 when you go home and have a look at it, you'll see that. The crowns represents the beast's false claims of sovereignty and universal authority in opposition to the true king of kings and lord of lords. In John's day, the beast from the sea was identified as Rome, and this is seen in Jewish writings of the time. And in the light of Daniel 7, the Roman Empire transcends many centuries and represents all world powers who oppress God's people until the end of history. 
It also represents the system of spiritual evil standing behind the nations, manifesting itself in successive world empires. So we see think, think of things like the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, Sodom, Rome, the Nazi Empire, Stalin and communism. And it can also be seen in terms of economic, social and religious structures within them. Well, for us, of course, we don't live within any of these empires. But we need to be careful that we don't give the political system of our day, liberal democracy, more uh, honour than it actually is worth. We don't worship it. But what about man's reaction to this beast from the sea? Well, look at verse 4. The whole world will follow the beast uh, because they are astonished at the power that enables that fatal wound to be healed. But they go even further. They don't just follow the beast. They make this into a religious activity and they worship the dragon and the beast. Now, this, of course, goes right against God's commands that thou shalt worship only the Lord thy God. And it fulfills what the devil wants, the worship that is due to God to be given by mankind to him. And the dragon authorises his empire to act within his own power that denies the true God. However, we see here that it's only God that has the supreme authority. This is implied by the time limit set in verse 5 of 42 months. And those predestined number of people who worship him in verse 8, those whose names are not written in the book of life. So we then can rejoice in the fact that only God, not the devil, sets times and seasons. The devil would never want a mere three and a half years to do his bidding. However, we do see here a small group of mankind, followers of Jesus, whose names are written in the book of life, will be subjected to war and impression. In fact, it looks as though they will be defeated because we read in verse 10 the fatality of what will happen. We see that they will, and how they will uh, have to respond to this. We see that John writes that they, in verse 10, that they must uh, respond with patience, endurance, and faithfulness. John is warning the people it's better to be prepared for what will happen, even though or because of its badness. And perhaps we need to pray for patience within our society, endurance and faithfulness. Now, I've been very fortunate, like many of you here. I was born into the 1950s, at the end of food rationing after the World War II. I've never known warfare in Britain, or political unrest of any, any scale. But I have experienced a rising stand of economic wealth and no persecution of any magnitude because I follow Jesus. However, we know that followers of Jesus have been persecuted in Britain throughout our history. Two weeks ago, I was on holiday walking in the Simonside Hills in Northumberland. And uh, I was walking with Liz, my wife, and we came upon this. The Little Church Rock, it's called. And it's a place where clandestine religious meetings took place in defiance of the established church during the Reformation. People were persecuted for following Jesus. 
And today, many people in other parts of the world are experiencing persecution. We think of those in Egypt today. We think of those Christians in Syria, Christians in Baghdad, Christians in Pakistan. And none of us knows what will come in the future. So as followers of Jesus, we can be warned and we can prepare for this by learning scripture and praying. Pray for these three instructions given by John. Be patient, endure, and be faithful to Jesus, whatever happens. But what about the second beast? The second beast. And how does man react to him? Well, look in verse 11 to 14. And this beast came up from the earth and represents perverse ideologies, philosophy, and religion. We see this because uh, he is given power and authority by the dragon and forces the world to worship the first beast through deception by performing miracles, including bringing fire to descend upon the earth. See how this beast deceives and copies what Jesus did. Miracles, supernatural activities. In fact, such was his power that he could give life to an image a statue that would kill those who refused to worship him. And this beast also forces people to be marked with a sign that would influence their economic activity. So this beast forces people into religious activity and controls their daily economic activity. In other words, he has total control over them. And the devil seeks to duplicate God's activities so that mankind is deceived into worshipping him. For us, this is a warning again. The devil and his minions have the power to carry out spiritual and economic activities which deceive people into his control and authority. And as I was thinking and reading about this and praying about it, I wondered, are we being deceived in our culture, politics or religion? Remember Jesus' words. He said this, and it's written in Matthew 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So how then do we know the real from the false? Well, we need to learn, don't we, to discern what is genuine and what is not genuine. And we can do this by getting so familiar with the real thing that spotting the counterfeit becomes quite easy. This principle is confirmed to us by Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So where does wisdom begin? By fearing God and growing in our knowledge and understanding of him. We need, don't we, to get to know God so intimately that when some kinds of deception comes into our lives, we immediately recognise that it doesn't conform to that what we know about God. So let's pray for wisdom and discernment so we know when miracles are, in fact, of God. Now, throughout the uh, Christian tradition and history, this second beast which is the uh, philosophical and religious one, has been given the title of the Antichrist, or copier of Christ. Some commentators have seen this image as a person of history, or a person of the future. Others have seen this as a characteristic of a movement of evil behind religious or political movements. 
The Antichrist has been used by various Christian groups to identify those that actually oppose their beliefs. So in the past, we've had the popes being called Antichrists. But to bring a William Tyndale said a similar thing. But he said that the Antichrist could be any movement that opposes God. So to bring it up to date then, what is the Antichrist and what will his movement look like? Well, the movement will decree worship. It will decree economic unity and following one leader. Some have identified this with new technology. Is the new technology we've got today allowing this to happen? Big Brother watching you. Others have thought it might be a political organisation that seeks to bring unity throughout the world. So some have suggested the League of Nations after World War I or the United Nations. But whatever. To conclude, this chapter gives us John's vision of the future and the present. In contrast to the Holy Trinity, there is the Trinity of the Devil who seeks to copy God and his Trinity and deceive people. Power is given to Satan by God for a limited time. And within this chapter, we don't see the final outcome where God defeats Satan and his two beasts. This is found in chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation. You might like to read that when you go home. So how were the followers of Jesus and the members of these seven churches to respond to this grim warning? Well, in verse 18, we're told, with wisdom and with uh, patience, in verse 10, endurance and faithfulness. And this suggests to me that this isn't a one-off occurrence. No, it's continuous activity. It gives us a background for our spiritual lives, our attention to scripture and prayer. As I said in the beginning, in this chapter, there is a warning and an encouragement. The warning, look at history. The devil is active within political and religious activities, deceiving many people that will have a major effect upon followers of Jesus. So be warned, but don't don't be surprised at what happens within this world in the future. But be encouraged. It is God that has given the devil the power and the time for this activity. It's God that's in control of time and history, and God will overcome the devil, though we may well have to wait some time for this to happen, as shown in chapters 19 and 20. So the message then prepares us for a troubled future, even though we might wish for a very good future for our grandchildren or the generations to follow. A time when there will be oppression. Be warned, but recognise that God will have judgment and will overcome the forces of evil. Keep that in mind as you go through your life this week. I'd like to finish with one quote from a man called Simon Ponsonby, who says this, We need to be prophetic in our denouncement of any antichrist spirit, unflinchingly preaching Christ, passionately worshipping the Lamb alone and pastorally assisting the many who are victims of evil. And I think that sums it up nicely, doesn't it? We can be warned, but we don't need to walk in fear. We can walk with the joy that Jesus came to save us, which is what this, uh, this service is all about this morning. And we can have that hope in the future that in the end, 
God will overcome. There will be judgment. Satan will be brought to book. And his followers of Jesus will have eternity with him. So let's rejoice in that fact this morning. Amen.